Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, Taiwan was set for disaster, predicted to have the second worst number of COVID cases. But this country of nearly 24 million people on an island a third the size of the South Island tops the world for controlling it. Now the push is on for New Zealand to follow Taiwan. Taiwan has been singled out by Otago University researchers as the most effective COVID response and the least disruptive in the world. Remarkable. They had prepared this plan and very good public health agencies who were there ready to go and they've really invested in this area. In order to get better, and if we don't think that lockdowns are compatible with wellbeing, we've got to compare ourselves with the best in the world. Uh, And I'm presenting uh, a series of measures that we can learn from the Taiwanese, who of course have learned from SARS, dengue, bird flu and swine flu before them. So let's compare and contrast. Like New Zealand, it has a daily briefing. Here's the Minister of Health and Welfare saying today there are no new cases. Also like New Zealand, there is clear messaging, let's stamp out the virus. But then there's this. The main difference is their heavy use of of IT and some pretty invasive use of mobile phone tracking. More on that soon, but let's wind it back to something that happened nearly 20 years ago in Taiwan that's had a huge influence on its handling of coronavirus. Suddenly it exploded. There was a huge outbreak at Herping Hospital. They locked the hospital down and they ordered everyone back into the hospital. There were more than a 1,000 people locked in there. There was insufficient PPE and there were no real plans for how to deal with the lockdown. Kiwi Ron Hansen is talking to me from his apartment in Taichung City. He came to Taiwan 20 years ago for just a year to teach. And he's still there, married to a Taiwanese woman, applying for permanent residency and running an online arts magazine, White Fungus. For Ron, the SARS crisis in 2003 is still fresh in his mind. They they couldn't establish the chains of transmission and it just got really, really chaotic. One patient committed suicide. Uh, One of the nurses tried to jump out the window and had to be restrained. The nurses and doctors were hanging proteus signs out the window. You know, it was really quite a visceral sort of a moment. Everyone's, you know, watching it in in horror. In the end, 26 people died in that hospital during the course of that quarantine, including seven um, hospital workers, including the senior nurse. And then the hospital started going down like dominoes. So, yeah, it was pretty, it was a pretty terrifying time. You know, what's interesting is what you wrote about what happened in Taiwan then and what is going on in some countries now. You talk about the full-blown anxiety, people looting stores. There was no confidence in the government. There was no decent information coming out. And so, obviously... Taiwan got a bit of a shock from that because it was it became the epicenter for SARS. So then the response since then has been quite incredible in terms of preparing for a pandemic. I don't, I don't think anyone knew quite how prepared the government was for this. You know, it was um, because in, in normal times, most of us aren't really paying that much attention to these issues. We're just getting on with our lives. But behind the scenes, the government was really preparing um, for a future pandemic, knowing that it was 
just a question a question of when. Because it set up a central epidemic command centre with a checklist of 124 action items. That would, I, I think that, that's one of the most important things that's happened because during SARS it was really chaotic, just the coordination between national and local government, between business, and it was just unclear at certain points who had authority over what and there were conflicts. And so, you know, so they set up this agency, this um, the Central Epidemic um, Command Centre, so it could coordinate all these different departments and, and, and work with business and just, just avoid these um, conflicts and uh, just have efficient, because, you know, speed is really the name of the game and with a pandemic and, and you know, New Zealand's, um, you know, you know one praise because of its speed in terms of a lockdown, but, you know, it, 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 Taiwan was just, you know, in terms of the border controls, the screening of passengers, just the masks, just everything. It was just, yeah, they were, it was, the country was ready to go. So, Ron, explain to me how quickly. Well, it's, it's phenomenal because what happened is on December 31, it's kind of an interesting story, a health official in Taiwan had accidentally set his alarm clock for the wrong time. And he woke up sort of at five in the morning and couldn't get back to sleep. So he's scrolling his phone on the internet, as many of us do, as we shouldn't, but many of us do when we can't sleep. And he was going over a, um, an internet forum, a chat room, and he noticed that there were some doctors and medical staff in China and Wuhan talking about this outbreak of atypical pneumonia cases. And, you know, there were, I think there were some hospital charts put on, on the room, so we thought, hmm, this looks pretty serious. And um, within hours of this health official stumbling across this, that same day, Taiwan was already screening passengers from Wuhan on, at the airport. I've seen the video taken that day, alarming pictures of people dressed head to toe in white PPE gear. And remember, this was December the 31st. New Zealanders were still oblivious to the severity of it. They were actually officials from the CDC were going onto the airplanes and screening people. So literally within hours, mm. um, they quickly got sent over a couple of experts to China to investigate. There's a pretty uh, healthy scepticism in Taiwan towards China and towards the WHO. So Taiwan doesn't wait for um, instructions or information. It goes about getting its own information and making its own decisions, and that's been really important. So they send over um, a couple of experts to go and investigate for themselves as quick as possible. And on January 20, the Epidemic Command Centre got put into action, and then immediately they put together this checklist of 124 action items, and that, that was quickly implemented. There really was no time to waste here. If uh, even a, you know, a few days of slow action could have really created a pretty serious situation here. So let's look at the numbers. New Zealand has around 1,973 cases and 25 deaths. Taiwan, around 568 cases and 7 deaths. Don't forget, Taiwan's 23.8 million people are squeezed into 36,000 square kilometres. That's one-seventh the size of New Zealand. In Ron Hansen's words... If it's not done right, it's really it's a, it's a time bomb. Amazing. It's been pretty remarkable. Yeah, remarkable. 
remarkable. And tell me, what is life like there now? Life now is pretty well just normal. The only difference is that if I, I, will, I will wear a mask when I take public transportation, when I go to the bank, when I go to the post office, or am in any sort of crowded indoor setting, you know, like a shopping mall or a bookstore. But otherwise, it's normal. There's the regular temperature checks, and of course, there's the hand sanitizer outside or public facilities. So apart from the, the compulsive hand washing and cleansing and and temperature checks, it's you can almost forget there's a pandemic going on. What do you mean course, by the temperature checks? What happens there? How do they and, do that? Uh, Arbor for temperature guns, so it's it's very quick, but they just you know they just uh, it's got a sensor and it just they do it. And if you're going into an apartment building, um, often you've got to write down your name and um, maybe and your phone number and your temperature. And, and, so, and do you have a tracing app like we do? Taiwan doesn't it doesn't use an app. I mean, the most important thing with the contact tracing is still the manual contact tracing, just the, the laborious stuff that New Zealand does. And that's important because you've got to build trust with people. So you can't just totally digitise this. But there is also a digital element here, whereas the... Um, the CDC can gain access to the location data for people's mobile phones. You know, they can create a digital footprint and they can see who else was within proximity of, of that person. And this is more particularly important if we haven't been able to determine where this person got infected. So the digital tools supplement the, the rigorous um, contact tracing that goes on. So there's really no need for something like the COVID tracing app. Say if there is a new case, can you explain to me how they trace the people who might have been in contact with that person? The direct um, interviewing is the most important, but what they will do is they'll check which places did this person go to and then they'll uh, make that information public. They'll say, hey, this um, person who was infected visited these locations at these times and then anyone who was in that location during that time will receive a text message just asking them to um, be careful and to uh, monitor their health and to report any symptoms immediately. So there's the big difference, the heavy use of IT. And some pretty invasive use of mobile phone tracking and other similar mechanisms. John Hopkins is Canterbury University law professor and a specialist in disasters. He's comparing the two countries on RNZ's morning report. To control individuals and to pinpoint who's at risk of having virus. This is the most controversial aspect of, of Taiwan's response. The, the privacy issue is really complex. I, I don't think there are simple answers to these questions. It's a, it's a discussion that a society has to have. It's a debate that needs to take place. But to break it down, Taiwanese personal data is protected by the Personal Data Protection Act. Now, because of the emergency powers that have come into play during a pandemic, that means the CDC is able to collect specific kinds of data for specific purposes. That's the location data of people through mobile phones who are either being quarantined or are being contact traced. The phone companies already have the data 
So it's just a matter of whether um, it's deemed acceptable for the government to use that data. And there's a pretty strong consensus here that it is acceptable at this particular time. But it's not a free-for-all. It's very um, narrowly defined. And as soon as the pandemic is over, then that um, emergency power is, is no longer in play. Nonetheless, it does raise a lot of issues, and I think that Taiwan is, is going to have to um, have a lot of discussions about that moving forward. You would have probably heard that David Seymour is calling for something similar here. The ACT Party wants New Zealand to adopt the Taiwanese approach to quarantine, where new arrivals are allowed to isolate in privately run facilities, such as Airbnbs. The ability to isolate privately is something that Taiwan achieved because they got a lot of other stuff right. Uh, We're a long way away from that at the moment. And not just Seymour, here's epidemiologist Nick Wilson. We could actually stratify countries which are very low risk, and these could be places like Australia, Taiwan, Pacific Islands. And for those places, uh, people could have a different type of quarantine arrangement, maybe a week in a uh, proper facility, and then maybe a week or two in home quarantine where they have uh, some more freedoms, but maybe also with uh, digital technology to ensure that they adhere to quarantine. So can you explain to me how that works and how, how successful it is? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is for me, this is a pretty non-controversial element. You turn up at the airport, you give them your phone number, and then they can track your location of your phone for the duration of your quarantine. Now, because of this, that means people don't have to go to quarantine centres. They, you know, they can quarantine at their own homes. Um, and what happens is that if that phone leaves, the, the information is coming from the telecommunications companies. So if that phone leaves the location, then the CDC immediately gets a, a notification and then... Yeah, a police officer will go and uh, visit that person to see if they're in their location. And what they'll do is they'll call once or twice a day at a random time um, just to check that that person is by the phone. I guess everyone here, because we've enjoyed such remarkable freedom, we we see that as a, a trade-off. You know, you lose your 14 days of freedom um, if you come back into the country, and that, and that's enabled everyone else to enjoy um, full mobility in Taiwan and a virus-free lifestyle. And also, if you break the rules, I mean, the fine is 55,000 New Zealand dollars. I mean, that's enough to put you off from straying too far from home, isn't it? It's a heavy fine, and, and, you know, because look at the cost that Mm. that, that society incurs. You know, if if just one of these cases slips out, it could result in billions of dollars of losses, not to mention all the anxiety that everyone has to go through and all the measures that everyone has to take. So it's, I'm, you know, I'm not usually one for heavy-handed government, but it's it's just a matter of um, the context and proportion. I do think it is funny that, that the ACT Party is championing Taiwan because, you know, they're sort of cherry-picking it a little bit here. I mean, certainly a a big part of um, Taiwan's success has also been the the cheap doctor's visits. You know, you can see a doctor here for around $7 New Zealand. And so that's that's really got people in the habit of, of going to the doctors early and quickly.
And so I do hope that if, if the ACT Party's championing Taiwan's response, they'll also be pushing for $7 doctor's visits for all New Zealanders. Let's hear again from John Hopkins on the pros and cons. The methods that we're using in New Zealand, although they are effective, uh, they're, they're old-fashioned, they're effective old-school methods, but they uh, bring with it extensive economic damage, as we know. So they've managed to avoid, at least partially, that in, in, in Taiwan. But the cost, if you want to use the word, although I, I'm a bit reluctant to do so, is um, that they, for example, have linked their health um, computer system with immigration so that they can tell who comes in and then track the, the, uh, the individuals concerned. And then use something called a digital electric fence, which is the use of mobile phones to ensure you stay in your, uh, your house or whatever you've been allocated during your quarantine. And you can imagine that's something we're not used to in New Zealand. The question is, would people in New Zealand accept that the government can freely access that information about everybody? Well, it would be a transition. I mean, New Zealand didn't exactly accept masks very eagerly either. But so, you know, there's obviously a lot of um, transformation that needs to take place. I think there needs to be a conversation about it. I don't think it's simple, but I, I don't think it's something that should not be discussed and just sort of ruled out. I mean, lockdowns are pretty heavy-handed, and, and, and from our perspective in Taiwan, they seem rather authoritarian. And that's also a power that could be abused, and it also needs to be legislated and clearly defined. So, Was there that kind of debate in Taiwan? I think that there have been debates um, over the years leading up to this. And, you know, I before talking to you today, I thought, well, let me just check in with a friend who's who's quite involved in sort of political issues. My friend Brian Hugh runs a, a site called New Bloom, and which is a deals with um, civil rights and labor issues and just sort of political issues in Taiwan and Asia in general. And I was just I asked him, you know, what what do you think about this? He said that, you know, like civil rights, human rights organizations, he thinks are, are, are kind of biding their time before they raise some of these issues. And, you know, I asked him just straight up, well, what do you think? Neither of us are keen on surveillance. You know, was it worth it? The trade-off, was it worth it? And, you know, he sort of felt like, well, for now it appears so, but uh, the jury is out. One of the elements of New Zealand's success has been the very strong message from the government. And, you know, the message from the Prime Minister to be kind and we're a team of five million and we're in our own bubble, that kind of thing. Was it a similar sort of message in Taiwan? I think there were, there were real similarities between New Zealand and Taiwan's um, public outreach from the government. And those were, yeah, real, real point of comparison. You know, there were the daily briefings here and they became almost a bit of a cult classic just like in New Zealand. There was one particular uh, moment which was really interesting. A, a boy had gone to school and, and had had to wear a pink mask at school because it was the only colour he had and he had been teased by um, his classmates and had complained to his mother and his mother contacted the CDC and told them about this. So the next day at the press conference, all the members of the CDC do the public briefing wearing pink masks. Monday's epidemic briefing was unusually stylish, with all the officials wearing matching pink-coloured masks. I want to tell children that all the mask colours are the same. Everyone can wear them all. The pink is actually great. When we were small, our favourite cartoon character was the Pink Panther. 
And um, it was quite a phenomenal moment, you know, which just just to sort of, you know, just to, to normalize and say, hey, it's okay if we're doing it, you, you know, you can do it too. And Premier Su Zhenchang, Education Minister Pan Wenzhong, and Transport Minister Lin Jialong all appeared pretty in pink. Color is not a gendered thing, so we shouldn't divide ourselves up by color. It demonstrates that the transparency and the sort of level of communication that you're seeing between the public, and that's that's helped to build trust、um, in terms of the government using the tools that it has at its disposal. So the economy. This is another astounding thing: is that the economy has shrunk, certainly in New Zealand, and it's worse in other places. But Taiwan. The economy grew 1.5 percent in the first five months of 2020. Has that continued? Yes, actually,、uh, I think the last quarter it was something like 3.3 percent. So it's actually, yeah, it's actually gaining momentum. So Taiwan looks to be one of the few economies in the world which is going to grow during this pandemic. And unemployment here is almost exactly the same, at exactly the same level as it was a year ago. So there was an initial hit, but it was、um, it wasn't anywhere near as severe, obviously, as in other places that, that did lock down and. Um, they rebounded very quickly. I think it's a real confidence booster for Taiwan because you know Taiwan, due to its complicated political situation, doesn't get a lot of attention. So you know, like New Zealand, Taiwan can't participate in the Olympics under its own name. It's not part of the WHO. So this has been a rare moment where where Taiwan's really been able to、um, show the world what it's capable of. Because usually it's yeah, it's pretty frustrating. For people here, that Taiwan doesn't get given its due. Hey, just finally, Ron, what do you think is the biggest thing that could that New Zealand could learn from Taiwan? The amazing thing about Taiwan is like, Taiwan really messed up its initial SARS response in 2003, but by really examining what happened and really taking a hard look at it, it was able to prepare and create the world's best. COVID nineteen response. So in New Zealand, you know, the election's over. There needs to be a, a thorough review. So obviously, there's just a cultural element. There's, there's going to be a long、um, term process of, of just getting people in the habit of wearing masks. I just think all New Zealanders should have a supply of masks in their homes, just like having a first aid kit. And、um, public attitudes need to be changed on that. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is brought to you by Newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Rangi Poik and produced by Mark Jennings with Jesse Chang as the associate producer. And thanks to Ron Hanson. Mā te wā. 